0: The COVID vaccine rolls out despite media predictions it wouldn't happen by year's end. The Electoral College votes for Joe Biden, and Attorney General William Barr steps down. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Your data is your business protected at expressvpn.com. Slash, Ben, we'll get to all the news in just one second. First, you may have noticed it's been pretty chaotic out there this year. It's going to be chaotic into the future because we are spending money that we simply do not have, which means that you can expect at some point there will be tax increases or there will be inflation. Here is the bottom line. You're going to want to diversify at least a little bit into precious metals. And this is where my friends at Birch Gold come in. How about putting some real silver in your loved one's stocking this year? That's right, because right now, through December 21st, for every 5000 bucks you spend with Birch Gold Group on physical gold or silver or investing in your precious metals IRA, Birch Gold will send you bonus silver, which is a great deal. It's the countdown to inauguration day. It's a great time to pull some of the earnings out of the stock market, solidify those savings through diversification. I and mean, God forbid the Democrats were to win those Senate seats in Georgia. Things could get real dicey for your stock portfolio really quickly. Here's what you need to do. Text BEN to 474747 when you speak to your Birch Gold representative. Let them know you want the free silver with your purchase. Even if you're investing in a precious metals IRA, you still get that physical silver delivered directly to your door. I've been working with the folks at Birch Gold for years. They're people that I trust. They're people I think you should trust as well. Call them up, ask them all your questions, get all your answered, and then look to invest with Birch Gold. Text BEN to 474747. Get a free information kit on diversifying into gold from my friends over at Birch Gold. A plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Countless five-star reviews. Again, text BEN to 474747 to open that precious metals IRA and get that free silver before December 21st. All righty. So we begin this morning with a fascinating piece over at the Columbia Journalism Review. This piece was not meant to be a rip on CNN, but it is in fact a rip on CNN because it just goes to show how the sausage is made when it comes to the media. Media very often are not following the news. They are creating the news or they've decided to craft a narrative and they are going to fit the news into the narrative. And this becomes perfectly obvious in this piece from the public editor of the Columbia Journalism Review, Ariana Picari. It's called CNN Public Editor, What Comes After Trump and COVID? It seems like a good moment, with the ends of the Trump administration and global pandemic in sight to ponder what is next for CNN. After years of long, chaotic days, news producers on the brink of burnout or well past it are certain to welcome a time of relative calm, as long as they are able to retain their jobs. WarnerMedia announced a new round of layoffs this fall. At a recent company town hall, its chief executive, Jason Killar, was asked if CNN was at risk, as some have speculated. Killar didn't explicitly say no, a reporter noted its headline, but appeared bullish on the cable news network highlighting its recent ratings success. Inside the network, according to informal conversations with several staffers in the weeks since the election, there is pride that CNN ended the month of November on top in the coveted 25 to 54-year-old demographic, both in primetime and in total day audiences. There's a belief the network may benefit from the fact that Fox News fans are depressed and MSNBC has not yet figured out how to position itself in a changed news cycle. But, says the Columbia Journalism Review, like every other news network, it may struggle in 2021. CNN must figure out how to cover a Biden administration that isn't defined by conflict. Having a president in Trump who is well-versed in reality TV and whose main aim was to outrage and troll his political opponents has been a boon for ratings. Likewise, Trump may have broken the grading curve. Think about the potential controversy if Joe Biden had been the first to nominate a recent general to lead the Pentagon. And so this Columbia Journalism Review article is all about how CNN is now looking for a narrative. And this is the dirty little secret about how the media do their business. It is about ratings. In the end, it is largely about ratings. They're not following the most important news. They're not following the most vital news. They're not telling you the truth about the news. They're not providing you a well-balanced view of the news. They are there to drive a narrative. And if that narrative sells, well, that's what they're looking for. And so right now, CNN is looking for a new narrative. Now, we know that this is what mainstream establishment legacy media outlets do. We know that the New York Times, for example, in the aftermath of the failed attempt by Robert Mueller's team to go get Donald Trump, that the New York Times, Dean Baquet, held an editorial meeting with all of staff, and said, we are going to shift resources into covering the racism narrative. And then magically, voila, within the next year, every single story turned into a racism story. We got the George Floyd protests. We got the protests in the streets. We got the 1619 Project and all of this. Right? We know that the New York Times officially stated that they were following a narrative. They, now, usually newsrooms are called newsrooms because they cover the news, not because they're narrative rooms. But let's be real about this. Legacy media, establishment media, they're not there to cover the news. They're there to make the news. So, What exactly will CNN be looking to push over the next few years? According to the Columbia Journalism Review, the chatter within the network is that there's an appetite for a dramatic news storyline to replace Trump, most likely to be propagated internal discussions have suggested through punditry instead of more expensive and risky reporting. It could pit the moderate Biden administration in opposition to those on the extremes of his party. Or depending on Republican behavior, the narrative may dissect Biden's prediction that he was best suited to forge bipartisanship. The network will also seek a Biden whisperer, a journalist impeccably connected, as the New York Times' Maggie Haberman has been with Trump, who can offer access and micro scoops on the new administration. The well-intentioned journalist at CNN, says the Columbia Journalism Review, may still have to fight to do anything other than conflict-ridden segments that seek drama to juice ratings. And this is the point. Okay, CNN is going to look for whatever is the juiciest, and not only whatever is the juiciest, but whatever is most calibrated to please their leftist audience. Notice the narratives that Columbia Journalism Review is suggesting. One is Joe Biden is too moderate, and the other is Joe Biden is too moderate, right? (laughs) Those are the two narratives they are suggesting. One is that he's too moderate for the radical wing of his party, and the other is he's too moderate compared to these terrible, awful, evil, no good, very bad Republicans. And it is this drive from the media to create narrative that has driven the backlash against the media. It is this drive by the media to craft narrative that means that we no longer trust the media and it's why there's so much doubt over our institutions. I've been saying this for the past week to use the the metaphor again. If the media are the glasses through which we view the world, and if it turns out the lens is cracked, it makes it very difficult to discern what is beyond the lenses. And as we see from our media, they are a cracked pair of glasses, right? They are shading the world in a particular direction. And so you don't know what to trust. And this is why there's so much endemic mistrust in all of our institutions up to and including our elections. Okay. Well, last night, The Electoral College did vote to elect Joe Biden. That was perfectly predictable. Obviously, the state votes had been certified in states ranging from Michigan to Pennsylvania to Georgia. There's still, as we'll get to, an ongoing legal case in Georgia. But with the vote of the Electoral College, that means that Joe Biden is officially the president-elect, at least until he is ratified January 6th by the Congress of the United States. There's a procedure for that. Here is what that looked like last night when the Electoral College, which, again, you have basically people meeting in every state, they voted to elect Joe Biden president, which, again is in accordance with the votes in those states as currently certified by those states.
1: I will now announce the the tally of the vote for the Office of President of the United States. For Joseph R. Biden of Delaware, a Democrat, eyes 55, nose zero.
0: Okay, that was the state of California that was announcing California put Biden over the top last night. And the media were just beside themselves. They were beside themselves at the magic of this moment. And it was very clear, obviously, who they were rooting for, right? You saw people like CNN's David Chalian saying, it's time to celebrate democracy. Now, I don't remember this sort of talk after the 2016 election when Donald Trump won, right? Then it was, the electoral college is very bad. We need to stop talking about the electoral college. Let's do popular vote kind of stuff. But now it's a celebration of democracy because, of course, this is narrative. It is not fact-driven. That's an opinion. Here's CNN's reporter. He's a journalist, David Chalian.
1: It is sort of a day to step back and celebrate democracy, but it is also a day uh, that has responsibility attached to it. Our responsibility
0: to show uh, all the viewers, to show the country and the world this process unfold uh, while Donald Trump and his allies want to suggest falsely without any, any realm of fact that the election was rigged or stolen or some way uh, not what it is. So much journalism happening right there. It's a magical day for democracy. In a way, the 2016 was not a magical day for democracy. This was just, it was, it was a great day because CNN has a narrative to drive. Now, the Republicans in many of these states have put up what they call alternative slates of electors. Those electors have not been certified by the state legislature, so they don't actually really mean much. The only way they would mean something is if there were a legal challenge that would be elevated to the Supreme Court, which would overturn the electoral slates that have been created in these various states or it got to Congress. And then there was some way that Congress voted to overrule those state electors, and then they would put in these replacement electors. That isn't going to happen, but that is what has been happening on the ground as far as what Republicans are doing. Now, all of this tied into the Joe Biden narrative. So Joe Biden decided that he was gonna do a victory speech last night. Joe Biden didn't have to do a victory speech last night. He did a victory speech the night of the election. And in fact, he's gonna get to do another victory speech, presumably on Inauguration Day, when he's inaugurated in, in January. So why exactly did he bother to do this victory speech again? The reason is, Out of spite, right? I mean, that's the only reason that he needs to do this. The process worked as the process is supposed to work. People brought their legal challenges, the states rejected the legal challenges, the Supreme Court rejected several legal challenges, and and then the electoral college voted. Okay, but he he felt the necessity to go out there and do a speech about how he was going to be a president for all Americans while basically crapping on Trump and crapping on Trump supporters, which is a strategy. I don't think it's a very good strategy, but again, it ties into the broader democratic narrative, which is that. Donald Trump is an enemy of democracy and Joe Biden is a friend to democracy. As we will see, there are some questions to be brought about just how much of a friend to democracy and freedom of the press Joe Biden is. And meanwhile, the media continue to craft that narrative in just one second. First, let us talk about the fact that everybody loves waffles. Okay, waffles are just, they're they're a great, great food. They're amazing, okay? And if you want the best way I have ever seen to make waffles, let me tell you about the Presto Stuffedler Stuffed Waffle Maker. This thing is just unbelievable. So over the weekend, I actually broke out The Presto Stuffler Stuffed Waffle Maker. And I put the batter in the way it works. You put the batter in, and then you put what you want for the stuffing in the center. You put some more batter in, you flip it, and then you just let it cook. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) The waffles that came out of this thing are just unbelievable. My kids were in love with it. They were helping me put it together. And then my wife got into it. We ended up making waffles that had like peanut butter cups that you put in the center. They melted in the center of the waffle. It's just unbelievably ungodly good stuff waffles for breakfast. They're they're not just for breakfast. They're for everything. And you can use the Presto Stuffler stuffed waffle maker to cook Belgian style waffles for pretty much everything. You can do sweet like we did. You can do savory. You can put like chicken, meat, fish, eggs, cheese, veggies. It's also it's all delicious stuff inside the Stuffler made waffle. It's just it's easy to use. It's really simple. You can use any batter. You put it in, you flip it. It's good to go. It's really, really easy to use. Let me tell you, it makes a great Hanukkah or Christmas gift. Go to stuffler.com, click the buy now, and then the add to cart button. Enter promo code Ben to get 10% off. This is gonna be part of our Sunday routines from now on. Go to stuffler.com, click that buy now, and then add the add to hit the add to cart button, enter promo code Ben, get 10% off. Again, stuffler.com, promo code Ben after you add it to the cart. Uh, amazing product. Go check it out right now. Stuffler.com, promo code Ben. righty. So Joe Biden decides that he is going to do a victory speech. Now again. There's no necessity for the victory speech, right? I mean, he thinks that this thing was over election night. It's now officially been voted on in the Electoral College, which means officially he's president-elect, okay? And that means that he is going to be able to do a big inauguration. But that's not what this is about. What this is about is, again, driving the narrative forward. The narrative is always and forever that Joe Biden is a friend to democracy. Democrats are friends to democracy, while Republicans who have outstanding questions or who are upset about the election, those people are enemies of democracy. But don't worry, Joe Biden stands for all of you, all of you. So here is Joe Biden last night.
1: A member of the of the electoral college representing the certified winner cast their votes for president and vice president of the United States in an act just as old as our nation itself. And once again <clears throat> the American America the rule of law our constitution and the will of the people prevailed. Our democracy pushed, tested, threatened proved to be resilient. True and strong.
0: OK, so again, this is part of the broader narrative, which is that Trump filing lawsuits in a variety of states is somehow a threat to democracy. No, actually, you know, it's not a threat to democracy. Working within the actual system of the democracy in order to challenge election results, whether you bring the evidence and you overturn the results, or whether you don't bring the evidence and you don't. The process worked. It was supposed to work. And the fact that Trump challenged the election, you know, he had every right to do that. I think some of the things he was saying were, were not accurate. I think that many of the claims that he has made are not backed by sufficient evidence to actually show their truth. But the idea that democracy was ever truly under threat here is pretty ridiculous on its face. And yet that is the narrative that's going to be driven. Because again, for Democrats, the rule is when they win, democracy worked. When they lose, democracy did not work. So when Donald Trump won in 2016, democracy did not work. In fact, I have right in front of me four years ago, a bunch of different Famous people on the left talking about how democracy had not worked because John because Donald Trump had won December twelfth two thousand sixteen. John Podesta of the Clinton campaign he literally said the bipartisan electors letter raises very grave issues involving whether electors have a solemn responsibility under the Constitution to have their questions addressed. So he was saying the electors right a bipartisan slate of electors back in two thousand sixteen said Hillary Clinton won the popular vote maybe we should vote for Hillary Clinton in the electoral college and John Podesta of the Clinton campaign was like those those questions deserve to have answers. Joy Reid tweeted out an opinion piece from the Washington Post titled, The Constitution lets the Electoral College choose the winner. They should choose Clinton. Chris Hayes over on MSNBC. Captain, I, I love democracy over there now. He tweeted out on December 6th, 2016. Fun fact, states decide how to apportion their electors. They could give them all to, say, whichever candidate won the majority of counties. Jonathan Weissman of the New York Times said the framers left electors free to choose. They should exercise choice by leaving the election as the people decided it. Right, so there was a whole push by the left in 2016 to overturn the results of the Electoral College and to push against how the Electoral College worked. But now we are being told, of course, that anybody who challenged the results of election in legal processes inside courts across the nation, that all of this was anti-democratic. Nope. That is perfectly within the boundaries of how all of this was supposed to work. And in fact, you know who knows this is Joe Biden. And the reason that we know that Joe Biden knows this is because if you go all the way back to 2016, There was an attempt, actually, on January 6th, 2017, rather. That was the date on which Congress had to ratify the Electoral College when Donald Trump was elected. And you know who had to preside over the ratification? Was Vice President, then Vice President, Joe Biden. Democratic lawmakers tried to overturn the results of the Electoral College in early January of 2017. Here's the New York Times reporting January 6th, 2017. One by one, the Democratic lawmakers stepped up to the microphone on Friday, holding on to their letters and an impossible dream, denying the presidency to Donald J. Trump two weeks before his inauguration. And one by one, Vice President Joseph R. Biden, presiding over a joint session of Congress to validate the Electoral College results, turned back their challenges with a stoic message, pounding his gavel without hesitation. It is over, Biden said at one point as Republicans rose to their feet to cheer. So Biden knows better than anybody else that there are a bunch of Democrats who are perfectly willing to overturn the results of the 2016 election. Representative Barbara Lee of California, for example, she got up and said, Mr. President, I object because people are horrified. The members, quote, spoke of voter suppression, of Russian interference, and of the bracing fear consuming many Americans. Repeatedly, Biden asked if anyone could produce an objection that was joined by a senator. He said in that case, and then when, when no one could, he said in that case, the objection cannot be entertained. As the exercise neared its end, Representative Maxine Waters, Democrat of California, said, I do not wish to debate. I wish to ask, is there one U.S. senator who will join me? Biden reached for his gavel. As Biden read the final numbers, there were conspicuous demonstrations against Trump erupting among visitors to the gallery. One woman shouted, I rise to defend our democracy. We reject this electoral vote. I rise to defend free and fair elections. A man cried in a moment. Donald Trump as commander in chief is a threat to American democracy. A couple people were arrested at the U.S. Capitol. And Biden knows that, right? So was that a threat to democracy? Not really. The process worked as it was supposed to work. Was this a threat to democracy? Not really. The process worked as it was supposed to work. And Biden continued with this sort of quasi-vindictive victory speech, was mostly designed to, again, suggest the narrative, which is he is super pro-democracy. Dude loves democracy. But people who oppose Joe Biden don't love democracy, even if they accept the results of the Electoral College, because that's how the process works. We'll get to that in just one second. First, Let us talk about the fact that it's a busy time at your front door. That means that a lot of people ring in that doorbell, a lot of people on your doorstep, and you want to make sure you know what is happening at your home. In fact, when we moved, my wife's first comment to me was, let's get ring devices on the door. We need to make sure we know what's going on at the house. Plus, I have three children under seven, and they have decided that they will now mobilize against me. They actually perform tactical operations against me. They call themselves the army of the children. I'm not kidding. And my six-year-old daughter calls herself the general, which she is frankly, because uh, her, her lieutenant is a little bit battle-hardened, the four-year-old. In any case, she uh, she has declared that they will mobilize against me. I have to keep track of all three of these children on a regular basis. There's only one of me. There are three of them, and they can usually outflank me, but not when, have, not when I have my Ring devices. And you need your Ring devices, too, with Ring. You can see and speak to whoever is at your door from anywhere with video doorbells. Keep an eye on every corner of your house with easy-to-install indoor and outdoor cams. Help protect your whole home with Ring alarm, a powerful, affordable whole-home security system you can easily install yourself. And for a limited time, go to ring.com slash Ben for special holiday offers. Again, that's ring.com forward slash Ben for special holiday offers. Ring.com forward slash Ben for special holiday offers and to get started. All righty. So Joe Biden continued with his victory speech and no necessity for this. He did this because it's all about narrative driving. So here he was saying, I won by the same margin that Trump did. Yes. and, And I'm sure that you will receive the exact same media backlash that Donald Trump did in the aftermath of his win in 2016. Here was Joe Biden.
1: The Vice President-Elect Harris and I earned 306 electoral votes, well exceeding the 270 electoral votes needed to secure victory. 306 electoral votes is the same number of electoral votes that Donald Trump and Vice President Pence received when they won in 2016. Excuse me. At the time, President Trump called the Electoral College tally a landslide. By his own standards, these numbers represented a clear victory then, and I respectfully suggest they do so now.
0: Okay, and then Biden continued by talking about the legal processes that were in place. He had to clear his throat a fair bit, which had people speculating on his health somewhere in the background. Kamala Harris was getting very, very eager. In any case, here was Joe Biden talking about the legal processes.
1: In America, when questions are raised about the legitimacy of any election... Those questions are resolved through the legal processes. And that's precisely what happened here. The Trump campaign brought, brought dozens and dozens and dozens of legal challenges to test the result. They were heard again and again. And each of the time they were heard, they're found to be without merit.
0: Um. So here is the thing. You can't have it both ways. If the legal process worked, then it wasn't a threat to democracy, was it? I mean, seriously, he's saying illegal pro- we have a process, the process worked. And then earlier he was saying that it was a tremendous threat to democracy from Trump and Team Trump. Now, again, this is all just part of the bull crap lie that you're going to be sold over the next several years, which is that if you oppose anything that Joe Biden does, it's because you're an enemy, you're an enemy of the majority, you're an enemy of democracy, you're a radical. Okay, that, is, that is part of the broader narrative push that is going to be made right here. Okay, now, how do you know that, that so much of this is narrative? Because we've been told, of course, that Joe Biden, for example, is a great friend to Liberties, a friend of democracy, a friend of the press, right? Donald Trump is one of the narratives the media drove for years is that Donald Trump was a threat to the press. The Washington Post put up a slogan on their front page, democracy dies in darkness. It was just for Trump. That's the only reason they put it up there. They decided that democracy dies in darkness because the freedom of the press was a, a dire threat under Donald. Sure, Donald Trump didn't jail journalists. Sure, he didn't surveil them in the same way that Obama did. In fact, he didn't even try to propagandize to them in even the same way that Obama did. I mean, Ben Rhodes overtly said in an interview that he was lying to an echo chamber of idiot foreign policy journalists about the Iran deal, and they just lapped it up. Certainly, Trump never received that sort of credulous media attention from the establishment media. But we were told that that Trump was a radical threat to the press. Okay, so far, Joe Biden has not answered a single difficult question in the entire campaign. In in, in the post-election period, he's not answered a single difficult question. So yesterday, he finishes his little victory speech. And Peter Ducey from Fox News immediately pipes up and says, question, when did you know that Hunter Biden was under was under prosecutorial threat? When did you know that he was under investigation? Okay, that's a real question. It's a question that he has been avoiding. It's a question that Dr. Joe Biden, I've been reliably informed by lots and lots of people that Dr. Joe Biden is in fact the greatest, she's not just a doctor, she is the greatest doctor. Like it, it, it basically goes, Dr. Jonas Salk, Dr. Joe Biden, Dr. Anthony Fauci, that's, it. that's how it goes in terms of, do- in any case, Dr. Joe Biden basically slammed the front door on reporters who are asking questions about Hunter. So Peter Ducey, whose job it is to be a reporter, he asked a reporter question and Joe Biden got mad because this is what Joe Biden does, because it turns out that Joe Biden has the same sort of politician dictatorial tendencies as most other politicians in Washington, D.C. He is all in favor of freedom so long as that freedom expresses itself in support for him. If, if it cuts the other way, then uh, not so much. So here was uh, here was the end. I mean, honestly, he does this whole thing about how democracy has been vindicated and how the process worked. And then Peter Ducey does a journalisty thing. And Joe Biden thinks that journalist jobs are to kiss his ass. This is what he thinks. So w- this exchange is pretty incredible.
1: May God protect our troops and all those who stand watch over our democracy. Thank you. Thanks for the, con- the congratulations. Appreciate
0: it. Thank you. Okay, so what Peter Ducey is shouting. When did you know that your son Hunter Biden was being investigated, Mr. President-elect? And Biden turns back to the press. Just to, like he doesn't, he could just ignore it and walk off stage. He can't. Right? Instead, he turns back. He says, "Thanks for the congratulations." It is not the job of the press to congratulate you. That is not the job of the media. That is not. Ju- but you could listen. Biden could be forgiven for thinking that. He could. I mean, he spent his entire career in the warm caresses of the media ever since Barack Obama decided to pluck him from obscurity and make him his vice president. So why wouldn't he think that it's the job of the press to kiss his ass? I mean, so far, that's what they've been doing. They did it the entire time during the election cycle. And that is what that's the narrative you can prepare for from now on is Joe Biden is just too good. He's just too freedom loving. He's just too democratic. He's just too unifying. That's the big problem. That's the reason he can't get anything done is because there are just too many people who who are mean to Joe Biden, Particularly on the right, they're just mean to Joe Biden. And if it weren't for that, Joe Biden would, would be able to get things done. He'd be more popular, probably. That is the way the media are going to treat this, because everything is the narrative, and the narrative is everything. Okay. In just a second, we'll get to the media's narrative about COVID, because it turns out that was completely wrong. And then they wonder why people don't trust them when it comes to their COVID coverage now. It's because you've been wrong on pretty much everything on that particular score. We'll get to that in just one second. First global pandemics, civil unrest, politicians infringing on your inalienable right to defend yourself. Now, more than ever, emotions are running very high in our country. As a result, more and more law-abiding Americans are making a rational choice, and they're purchasing firearms to protect themselves and their families. You may be one of the millions of people who've recently purchased a gun for self-defense. If you're a gun owner, you have to be aware of self-defense laws where you live. It's really not responsible to own a firearm and not know the legal ramifications of using it. You need proper education. You need industry-leading training to ensure your skills are sharp when faced with danger. Plus, the USCCA has purchased an insurance policy that provides the association and its members with self defense liability insurance that you need. The US Concealed Carry Association. Get started today by texting GUN to 87222. You will receive the complete Concealed Carry and Family Defense Guide for free. In this guide, you'll learn how to detect attackers before they see you, how to survive a mass shooting, seven firearms drills that could save your life, and much, much more. It's a 164-page guide loaded with valuable information in addition. If you text today, you'll be entered to win 1000 bucks to put toward a gun of your choice that you can use to protect your family. Text GUN to 87222 right now. Again, that's the word GUN, G-U-N, to 87222 right now to get started. You'll be entered to win 1000 bucks to put toward a gun of your choice, and you'll get the free 164-page guide. The complete concealed carry and family defense guide for free when you join up with the USCCA text GUN to 87222 right now to get started. Okay. so meanwhile, in actual good news for the country, the vaccine that Trump said was going to be developed by the end of the year has not only been developed, it is now gone out. It is being received across the country. One of the first people to receive it was a New York nurse named Sandra Lindsay, who said that she received the vaccine and she feels great.
1: I received the vaccine a short while ago. I feel great. It didn't feel any different from receiving my annual influenza vaccine. I am very proud to be a healthcare worker. And I'm also very proud to be in this position to promote public confidence in the safety of the vaccine. and encourage everyone to take the vaccine.
0: Okay, so this thing went out. It went out. By the millions of doses, apparently 2.9 million doses went out the front door. Uh, just a little trip down memory lane when it comes to the crafting of narrative. So you'll remember that over and over and over during the campaign, Trump said by the end of the year, we're going to have a vaccine. And the media just kept throwing cold water on it. It was impossible. It was never going to happen. So you have know, Misha Alessandor, you know, Trump ripped on her at a White House press conference and the entire media infrastructure came to her. Oh my God, she's such a great journalist, incredible journalist. Here's what she tweeted May 15th, 2020. President Trump just now at the White House on a coronavirus vaccine. We're looking to get it by the end of the year if we can. Moving on at record, record, record. Note, experts and officials say it is likely faster than what is possible. Okay. Then there is Jonathan, uh, Stephen Greenhouse over at the New York Times. What? This is August 27th, 2020. What? Three question marks. Trump boasts inanely, we'll produce a vaccine by the end of the year and maybe even sooner. Is Trump suggesting he'll pressure the FDA into approving a COVID vaccine in 2019? A reporter for the New York Times. PolitiFact, fact-checked on April 23rd, 2020. Okay, they fact-checked because Trump said that uh, the U.S. is very close to vaccine. They fact-checked it. Is the U.S. very close to a vaccine for the coronavirus, as President Trump said during tonight's coronavirus briefing? Public health experts say it could take a year and a half to roll out. Excellent fact-checking, PolitiFact. You are not biased in any way. Charlotte Clymer, the, uh, the LGBT activist, put out a tweet. From the debates, in which Trump said during the debates, we will have a vaccine by the end of the year. This is only in October. It's October 22nd, when it was becoming pretty clear that we were very close to a vaccine. Trump tweeted out, we'll have a vaccine by the end of the year, New Year's Eve. And then it was a a thing from um, from Riker on, uh, on Star Trek, from Unsolved Mysteries, saying, this is fiction. This is fiction. This was all made up. Right? Aaron Rupar from Vox.com, he tweeted out a clip of Donald Trump saying that the vaccine would be available in a couple of weeks. This is November 2nd, 2020. And Rupar then tweeted, that's the surest indication yet that we're not close. Hmm, excellent journalism there by Aaron Rupar. Objective, journalist from Vox.com. Very explainy over at Vox.com it gets sometimes. Jessica Hoosman tweeted, go ahead and flag this tweet. Trump tweeted on May 14th. Good numbers coming out of states that are opening. America is getting its life back. Vaccine work is looking very promising before end of year. Jessica Husman tweeted, go ahead and flag this tweet for when we do not have that vaccine by the end of the year. How about we flag your tweet? Tim O'Brien, lib commentator, said, no one in Trump's own government, at least those leading Operation Warp Speed, whom I interviewed, believes a safe, properly tested coronavirus vaccine will be ready by the end of the year. Amazingly irresponsible for Trump to be touting this in the midst of this crisis. This is August 27th, 2020. And then of course, Kyle Griffin from MSNBC, whose Twitter account as a low-level producer over at MSNBC for, I believe, Lawrence O'Donnell. His Twitter account can, because he apparently has like the emails of everybody in the echo chamber. If he tweets something, it becomes like a national story. He tweeted out, May 15th, 2020, a fact check from NBC. Coronavirus vaccine could come this year, Trump says. Experts say he needs a miracle to be right. Oh, look, a miracle. Or alternatively, you guys were lying the whole time because bottom line is that you wanted it not to be true. Many of you were rooting for it not to be true. You weren't willing to hold off on it. You weren't willing to just say, okay, well, you know, it's possible that this could be the case. Instead, you jumped to, it's in November, right? The day before the election, people were tweeting, it's impossible a vaccine will be available by the end of the year. The very next week, the very next week, which, by the way, is not a coincidence, you started to see drug companies come out of the woodwork and say, oh, yeah, by the way, all of our studies have been going really, really well. If that news had come two weeks earlier, maybe that affects the election. Dr. Marty McCarry from Johns Hopkins University, he had serious doubts. I, I had him on the show. He had serious doubts as to whether that was not held up by the drug companies for electoral purposes. There are a couple of stories that were really held up before the election that could have made a difference in the election. They really could have. This is why when people say it's rigged, there is rigged as in like people formally changed votes or the voting machines were hacked. And then there's rigged as in the conditions of the election were not free and fair on a broader level in that all the information that you should have known was not made available to you. If we had known a week before the election, if the American people had known a week before the election, that the vaccine was going to be ready and good to go by the end of the year. And that, in fact, companies like Pfizer had the vaccine ready and good to go. Like we know for a fact, by the way, that Pfizer already had the numbers and the FDA, administrators inside the FDA made them go back to the drawing board and add a few more people onto their study, even though they already had enough results to announce. We also know the Hunter Biden story was out there and we know that that was not confirmed by the DOJ and the media not only refused to report on it, they actively attempted to suppress the information on the Hunter Biden story. Right, we know all that stuff. Would that have made a difference in the election? It certainly wouldn't have hurt Trump. That is for sure. It certainly wouldn't hurt Trump. In any case, the vaccine is being rolled out. That is a triumph by the Trump administration. Anthony Fauci, the greatest of all doctors, like the actual, uh, apparently, he's not just a doctor, he's like the best doctor in all the, in all the land. Dr. Fauci, he said that there will be herd immunity by the end of June, 2021, which by the way, also gives the lie to Bill Gates's bizarre comment that we wouldn't be getting back to normal until 2022. Here he was talking about herd immunity.
1: I had been saying by my calculation sometime by the end of March, the beginning of April, that the normal healthy man and woman in the street who has no underlying conditions would likely get it. At the end of the day, the real bottom line is when do you get the majority, the overwhelming majority of the population vaccinated so you can get that umbrella of herd immunity? And I believe if we're efficient about it, and we convince people to get vaccinated, we can accomplish that by the end of the second quarter of 2021, namely by the end of the uh, late spring, early summer.
0: And by the way, point of fact, you know, the media, which has now shifted its narrative to we have to convince all of these unbelievers to get the vaccine, that shifted immediately on the election, like on a dime. Andrew Cuomo went from, we have to have our own state commission to determine whether the vaccine is safe to give us the vaccine like right now. And I'm gonna be out here and I'm gonna be telling all of you you need to get the vaccine. It's like, dude, five seconds ago, you were saying that you couldn't get the vaccine because it was developed under the Trump administration. The good news is the vast majority of Americans say they would receive the vaccine. 40% say they will take it as soon as it's available. 44% say they would wait a bit before getting it. This seems to be age striated, as by the way, it should be. If you're elderly or you're vulnerable, you should be looking at the vaccine like, give me that sucker right now. And if you are young and you're healthy, you might be saying, I'm gonna wait a little while because who cares if I get it? I'm probably gonna be fine, right? by By the actual statistics, if I'm 20 and I get it, then my chances of death are exceedingly low. If, however, I'm 65 and I have a pre-existing heart condition, give me the vaccine right this very instant. Only 15% of Americans, according to a a new poll, say they would refuse the vaccine entirely in the new survey. That was conducted by Ipsos in partnership with ABC News. More than 8 in 10 Americans say, of course, they will receive it. Among those who have been most closely hit by the pandemic, 45% said, that they would receive the vaccine right now. Among Americans who have not contracted the virus or don't know somebody who has, only 30% say they would be willing to be inoculated immediately. Only 7% of Americans over the age of 65 say they will never be vaccinated. That number rises to 20% among those between 18 to 29. 93% of elderly Americans say they are willing to receive the vaccine. More saying they will get it right away, 57% rather than further down the line, 36%. 80% of U.S. adults under 30 are willing to get it, but they're more likely to say that they would wait rather than getting it right away. That's actually good news because, again, we're going to be tranching this thing out. So if you're young, you are going to be waiting for it. So the fact that you're willing to wait for it is probably not a bad thing. So all of that is very good news with regard to the vaccines. Meanwhile, New York is talking about doing a full shutdown. Okay, Despite data suggesting that the shutdowns probably are not going to do anything, the reason I say probably is because there are contact tracing studies in New York right now that show that the vast majority of COVID spread is happening in household transmission. Here was Mayor Bill de Blasio, the most garbage mayor in America. And man, is that a close battle between a bunch of Democratic mayors ranging from Eric Garcetti to Ted Wheeler in Portland to Lori Lightfoot in Chicago to Keisha Lance Bottoms in Atlanta. And now you have, de Blasio still has to top that list. Here he was saying they may have to do a full city lockdown again.
1: There's a potential of having to do a full pause, a full shutdown in the coming weeks. Because we can't let this kind of momentum go. I mean, think about it for a moment. This city was the epicenter. We fought back. We became one of the safest places in the country. We opened our schools when most major cities didn't. We've kept our schools safe. But now we're seeing the kind of level of infection with the coronavirus we haven't seen since May. And we have got to stop that momentum or else our hospital system will be threatened.
0: Okay, so quick note. He's talking about shutting down all of the restaurants, like all of them. Well, it turns out that restaurants and bars account for less than 2% of new COVID cases in New York. Two percent. That's what New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said. He said private gatherings account for the vast majority of new statewide cases, according to Newsweek. Less than 2% are coming from bars and restaurants. According to the data, 74% of new cases have come from private social gatherings. He said, in many ways, you can understand what happened. You close bars, you close restaurants, you close theaters, you close stadiums, you close mass gatherings. Where do people go? They go home. Well, no, that's actually not totally the case. What's actually happened, this was always true. Okay, the the virus continued to spike in New York even after most of the shutdown happened. The reason being people went home and they stayed home with people for more than 15 minutes. Of course, the number one vector of transmission is people being at home. But they're talking about shutting down everything in New York. Uh, My friend Dave Rubin had a good tweet. You want everything to reopen? Tell everybody in Congress, tell all of your mayors, tell all of your state legislatures, none of them get a salary until things are open. So they can be just like all the people they are shutting down. And then we can talk about what should stay open and what should not stay open. What's an essential service and what is not an essential service. Alrighty, in just a second, we're going to get to the news that uh, William Barr, the Attorney General of the United States, is stepping down as of next week. First, let us talk about the best pillow on the market. Okay, so there are some great pillows on the market, but the best, the best one that I know is my pillow. Okay, this thing is so comfortable. We got one, and then it turns out that my wife was like stealing it from me at night. And so we just got another one. And you should, because the premium my pillow is regularly sixty-nine ninety-eight for but now you can get it for only $29.98, a forty dollar savings. That's the premium queen size, my pillow, king size, my pillow is only five dollars more. If you don't have my pillow or you know someone who doesn't, now is a great time because for a limited time, Mike Lindell, the inventor of MyPillow, is offering his premium my pillows for that extraordinarily low price. These things are really comfortable. Folks, now is the time to buy. Not only are you getting the lowest price ever, they're an Incredible Christmas gift. I mean, as a parent, I can tell you I lack sleep. So do all of my friends. This is a great gift for somebody who lacks sleep. $29.98 for a queen size premium MyPillow. By now, Mike Lindell will extend his 60-day money-back guarantee to March 1st, 2021. Go to mypillow.com, click on that radio listener square. There you will find not only this amazing offer, but also deep discounts on all my pillow products, including The Giza Dream Bedsheets, the MyPillow Mattress Stopper, and MyPillow Towel Sets, or call 800-651-1148, use promo code DAILYWIRE. Again, that's 800-651-1148, use promo code DAILYWIRE. In just a second, we'll get to Attorney General William Barr stepping down, and we'll get to Democratic infighting, and again, the media narrative, which is that Joe Biden is just too good for this world. He's just too good. He's just too wonderful a man for this, this particular world. We'll get to that in a second first. On Monday, December 21st, the historical docuseries, Apollo 11, What We Saw, will be available exclusively at DailyWire.com. It was originally released as an audio podcast for Apple and Spotify. What We Saw will be available to watch as well as listen to on the Daily Wire, Apple TV or Roku app or at DailyWire.com. The docuseries takes a detailed look at the Apollo 11 mission to land a man on the moon, the culmination of a heated, decades-long space race between Cold War rivals, The U.S. and the Soviet Union, the podcast explores one of America's greatest accomplishments through the eyes of the millions of Americans who lived through it. It's an incredible story, and you get to see it in real color. I mean, it's great. Apollo 11, what we saw, fantastic series to watch with your loved ones over the holiday break, especially as we are launching into a new space era right now. Get it for 20% off with code WATCH when you become an insider or above member at dailywire.com slash subscribe. Make sure to download our Apple TV or Roku app to get all of our content on your big screen. That is dailywire.com slash subscribe. Get 20% off your membership with code WATCH and access to all of our new and existing content. You're listening to the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. All righty, so meanwhile, William Barr, the attorney general, has stepped down out of his job Overall, William Barr did an excellent job as attorney general despite the massive slings and arrows. It's amazing to see how the media continued to treat William Barr despite the fact that according to their light, he should be a hero today. I mean, William Barr did not actually reveal news of the Hunter Biden investigation. I think that that was a dicey move considering that it was overtly known. I mean, people were actively reporting that he was under investigation, Hunter Biden. The DOJ refused to confirm or deny based on Justice Department protocol that you don't do anything that affects an election. It turns out that refusing to comment on a widely known matter is in fact affecting an election. I think there are open questions to be asked about that. I do wonder whether Trump's requirement, his sort of bizarre requirement to constantly go online and sound off about these things pushed Barr into a bad position. He kept saying over and over, I want William Barr to prosecute Hunter Biden. I want William Barr to open an investigation into William into Hunter Biden. And Barr's like, I'm the head of the DOJ. I'm supposed to be impartial here. How does it look if I just announce that I'm in, I'm opening an investigation or it's already open into Hunter Biden? After you said to do that, right, that, that is not exactly a great look. So I'm wondering if that had some impact here. In any case, overall, William Barr was a very strong attorney general. As Laura Ingram said on her show last night, people who are suggesting that Barr is a weak attorney general, either on the left or on the right, are being absolutely inaccurate. His treatment of the Mueller probe was exemplary. His, his decisions, whether or not to prosecute in various cases, have been nearly invariably good. And so William Barr put in his resignation yesterday. He said he would resign it next week. According to CNN, his departure was announced by the president on Twitter moments after counting, and the Electoral College put Biden over the 270 votes. He, uh, he tweeted out, just had a very nice meeting with Attorney General Bill Barr at the White House. Our relationship has been a very good one. He has done an outstanding job. As per letter, Bill will be leaving just before Christmas to spend the holidays with his family. Deputy Attorney General Jeff Rosen, an outstanding person, will become an acting attorney general. Highly respected Richard Donahue will be taking over duties of Deputy Attorney General. Thank you to all. There are some people who had been suggesting that May who's going to fire William Barr, but it was, it was basically irrelevant at this point anyway. A White House official said Barr was not forced out or fired. He said he wasn't asked, asked to resign. It was a very amicable amicable meeting. Another person familiar with the matter described the meeting as cordial. So Barr put, put out a letter talking about this. He said that any outstanding allegations of voter fraud would be continue, would continue to be reviewed. He had said earlier this month there was no widespread evidence of voter fraud that had been brought to his attention. That doesn't mean no voter fraud. And Barr wrote a very complimentary letter for Trump. He said, your record is all the more historic because you accomplished it in the face of relentless, implacable resistance. No tactic, no matter how abusive or deceitful, was out of bounds. The nadir of this campaign was the effort to cripple, if not ouster administration with frenzies and baseless accusations of collusion with Russia. So Barr is, uh, is moving out of the job. Of course, these are the, the last days anyway uh, for, the, for the Barr DOJ, no matter how you were going to slice it. Meanwhile, as all of this goes on, the media are finally starting to notice that uh, maybe there's some conflicts of interest with Joe and Hunter Biden. Now it's fair to talk about all of this. So Michael, Sch- Michael Scherer has a piece over the Washington Post. The last time Joe Biden worked in the White House, his son-in-law, Howard Crine mentioned executives from his healthcare startup firm would be visiting Washington. The vice president promptly arranged a meeting between the group, which included Krein's brother, Stephen, and President Barack Obama in the Oval Office. He knew about startup health and was a big fan of it. Howard Crine, the husband of Biden's daughter, Ashley, told the Philadelphia Business Journal in 2015. He asked for Steve's number and said, I have to get them up here to talk with Barack. Now Biden is preparing to step back into the Oval Office with radically different expectations about how he will handle the relationship between his official power and his family's private interests. Notice how the Washington Post is suddenly reporting on this. Until five seconds ago, it was completely verboten to talk about the fact that Joe has been facilitating his family's business interests for years. It's perfectly obvious this has been happening. He's giving his son Hunter lifts on Air Force Two to China. He was looking the other way when Hunter was going and cashing checks in Ukraine using his name. I mean, it, it, is, it is perfectly obvious what was going on for years. But we were told we were not allowed to report on this. Now, the Washington Post has decided to report on it. But how are they going to report on it? Not by suggesting that perhaps Joe Biden's history of familial corruption is bad, but by suggesting, well, you know, now he's going to change. It's a brand new time. It's a new leaf. Turn it over. Again, the narrative above all. Narrative, narrative, Uber Alice. My son, my family will not be involved in any business, any enterprise, in conflict with or appears to be in conflict. The president-elect told CNN this month, according to the Washington Post, that pledge has now been handed over to lawyers for the presidential transition who are drafting new rules for the Biden White House that are likely to be more restrictive than the rules that govern the Obama administration. The potential family conflicts, both with Biden and his top White House advisors, are more extensive than the Obama White House confronted. Biden's son Hunter is facing a federal investigation over taxes paid on a business venture in China, which also included Biden's brother James a situation that is certain to test the president-elect's promise to let the DOJ operate independently of his personal interests. Both men have worked for years at the intersection of government and the private sector, using the Biden name to win work and sometimes partnering with Biden donors. Through his lawyer, Hunter has promised not to work for any more foreign-owned companies and to, quote, keep his father personally uninvolved in his business affairs. John Owens, the husband of Biden's sister's Valerie, and a former college classmate of the president-elect owns a Delaware-based telemedicine company that markets itself as a solution amid pandemic restrictions with medical second opinion operations in Europe and Asia. The president-elect spoke to a conference for the company, Mediguide International, in 2017, and the firm boasted about it in its marketing materials. Biden and his wife, Jill, have also, Dr. Jill, I mean, come on, hey, hey, Washington Post, it's Dr. Jill. Biden and his wife, Jill, have also given speeches during the Trump administration at events produced by Startup Health, a firm that has investments overseas and that continues to boast about its Biden ties and a 2011 Oval Office meeting with Obama. Among the investors is Joe Chiani, a major Biden donor, who has also had Biden speak at a patient safety conference he sponsored in 2017. Much is riding on exactly how Biden decides to create the bright line he has promised. Existing ethics rules regulate the disclosure of non-public government information and financial conflicts for spouses and minor children. But the business dealings of extended family for both elected officials and political appointees traditionally fall into a legal and political gray zone. Why, why look at that. That's, a, that's amazing. Wait, now, it's, it's, Really, the question is how Joe Biden's going to be, you know, going forward. It's not going to be about his history, his longstanding history of corruption. It's going to be about how things are going forward. Wow, the me- excellent job by the media. It's safe to do it now. It's December 15th. You, you're allowed to report it now. So I'm glad that you're on it. Also in the most complimentary fashion, which is that certainly Joe Biden will not be a fox guarding the henhouse. He will be just the greatest, the greatest guard against his own corruption, given his career of not guarding against his own corruption. For sure. That That's going to be it. Well, William Barr is in fact leaving a bit of a welcome gift for Joe Biden. According to the dailywire.com, Ryan Saavedra reporting, special counsel John Durham is reportedly ramping up his criminal investigation into the origins of the FBI's counterintelligence investigation into the 2016 campaign. Durham U.S. attorney recently tapped by A.G. Barr to be special counsel, is apparently adding more prosecutors to his team. The latest development in the case comes after Politico reported over the weekend that Durham has been zeroing in on Christopher Steele. Politico reported in a previously unreported move, Durham enlisted a British law firm over the summer to take Steele to court in London, aiming to compel him to turn over notes he had taken of his meetings with the FBI in 2016, according to people with direct knowledge of the episode. The underlying context for the request, people said, is that Durham believes Steele's notes could contain evidence that FBI agents improperly disclosed classified information about crossfire hurricane as the bureau dubbed its Russia probe in the course of questioning Steele about his own findings. TNI John Ratcliffe said last week he thinks Durham should release an interim report because some Democrats had tried to stop the investigation. Durham, however, is appointed special counsel. That means it is very difficult to get rid of him. So that's something that Biden would presumably have to contend with. Meanwhile, in other Democratic news, Nancy Pelosi is desperate to retain her speaker position. According to the Daily Wire, Emily Zanotti reporting, Speaker of the House Pelosi is desperately whipping support to maintain her hold on the Speaker's position. She is urging her supporters in Congress to return to Washington, D.C. in January to be present for the vote, even if they're currently staying away over COVID 19 worries. According to Kevin McCarthy, Nancy Pelosi is fine with House Democrats skipping work if the votes are about legislation. But in January, she's going to demand every Democrat show up in person to vote for her for speaker. Her message is clear. Her power is more important than anything else. And she has been, in fact, demanding that her supporters return for the vote. She is deeply worried that there might be some sort of challenge. She has had help from her top deputies, House Majority Leader Steinie Hoyer and Jim Clyburn in South Carolina, according to Politico. She and her supporters have also deployed some former Obama administration alum and big donors to help squeeze undecided Democrats. According to Emily Zanotti, Pelosi is currently leading the race only by a narrow margin. Her, her rift with progressives and Democratic socialists in Congress has only grown wider. Democrats had a number of unexpected losses in the November election. That means that they now hold just a 10-seat margin over Republicans, 222 to 212. There's one last race that is outstanding. It is likely that that will turn to the Republicans as well. So hilariously enough, the person who's coming into the crosshairs now is AOC. The, I'm sorry, not AOC, the Honorable Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez D. Twitch. She's coming into the crosshairs now because she has suggested that she's going to support Nancy Pelosi. She had to tweet out, they aren't demanding anything as an assumption and a false one. These structural negotiations happen. They just aren't live tweeted. These negotiations started months ago and include House rules, PAYGO exemptions, committee makeup, vote commitments, investigations, et cetera. So she, her, her answer is that she's holding Nancy Pelosi, that her, she's holding her feet to the fire. Yeah, sure. Sure you are. Alexandria, I'm sure that's exactly what is happening. Good stuff. All righty, in just a second, we're going to be getting to more bizarre moves by the radical left. So the ongoing battle inside the Democratic Party between the radical left and the, and the moderate left, it, it really is largely just a question of timing. Because let's face it, Joe Biden is not significantly more moderate than the radical leftists in his coalition. He just wants to get there more slowly. And the media are trying to cover for him. You want to to see an obvious, ridiculous example of media bias. Michelle Borstein has a piece over at the Washington Post suggesting that Joe Biden is going to change what it means to be Catholic. Okay, I have a feeling that no. That institution, a couple thousand years old, I don't think the doddering octogenarian who can barely get a sentence out of his face is going to be changing the meaning of Catholicism for millions of people. I just don't think that's going to happen. Here's the Washington Post, however. Biden could redefine what it means to be a Catholic in good standing. Catholics are divided on whether that is a good thing. He's not going to be dividing people. On what it means to be a Catholic in good standing. Okay, it's not going to suddenly become Catholic church doctrine that same-sex marriage is wonderful and abortion is fine. Both of which are things that Joe Biden apparently believes. According to the Washington Post, however, again, this is in their religion section, it's not not bad. Catholics' view on Biden seems to serve as a proxy for what kinds of Catholicism they think most urgently needs to be advanced. Should it be more focused on qualities like engagement and empathy or on purifying doctrine? Is it as interested in Catholic teachings on poverty, refugees, and in the environment as those on sexuality and reproduction? Or should it continue to place abortion law above all? See, here's the thing. Uh, You you shouldn't have to have those values in competition with one another. This is something that Catholics know. All religious people know this. a, a, A religious worldview is holistic. It encompasses things ranging from views on poverty to things like abortion. It's not like you have to pick one or choose the other. But according to the Washington Post, you do, you see, and Joe Biden stands, with Catholicism on issues like poverty and the environment. But, you know, he's just a little wishy-washy on the whole killing babies that are in the womb and also same-sex marriage. Like, that stuff, he's he's not great on Catholic doctrine, but, you know, you're going to have to choose. Despite these divisions, says the Washington Post, Biden is poised to make his mark on American Catholicism. For the next four years, the country will see its president go to mass every Sunday, take out a rosary at times of contemplation, and quote his favorite childhood nuns and Catholic poets. It will watch him try to navigate polarizing issues of special interest to his church that John F. Kennedy never had to take a position on, abortion, LGBTQ rights, and climate change among them. Okay, I, I have just a, a quick point here. Um, no, that is my point. My point is no. I, I know many, 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 many believing Catholics like people who are deep believers who go to mass on a regular basis. Not a one of them looks to Joe Biden as a Catholic leader. Not one. Okay, he, he is a, a political leader, who happens to identify as Catholic, although he's been refused communion in at least a couple of churches because of his position on abortion. I'm frankly in, in a state of bewilderment as to how he has not been refused communion everywhere, given his position on abortion, same-sex marriage. And not only that, but because he's talked about the morality of same-sex marriage, not just its legal status, but also his belief that a boy can become a girl and a girl can become a boy. I mean, these are completely violative of Catholic doctrine. Now, he's free to take whatever position he wants, but I just find it weird that the Washington Post is trying to turn him into a Catholic leader. What the Washington Post is really saying is that Catholicism would be great, except for all the Catholicism involved. Religion is great, except for when it comes to doctrine. Jade Hendricks, former executive director of government relations at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, said, most people don't pay attention to bishops, they do to the U.S. president. When the president is almost diametrically opposed to the most basic human right, that creates problems across the board. How bishops address this is tricky, but if they don't, President Biden can redefine the perception of what it is to be a Catholic in good standing. Yes, I mean, it would be about time for religious Catholics to stand up and say, no, we are not going to be paying attention to Joe Biden's commitments on issues like abortion. Speaking of which, uh, just a couple of logical corollaries to Joe Biden's political positions when it comes to sort of the radicalism of the Democratic Party. Just want to to point this out. So Joe Biden literally said in a town hall that nine-year-olds should be able to decide whether they're a boy or a girl. That not only does not jibe with uh, Catholic doctrine, it does not jibe with human reason or biology. So there, there was a tweet that came up last night, and I, I thought this was just a fascinating tweet because it does show the logical conclusion, like the logical endpoint, of the leftist the leftist position on bio, biological sex and gender. So there is a um, there is a, an Orlando trans activist and science writer uh, named Zinia Z gem TV. Okay, and this tweet started to go viral. Last night, even though it was about hmm, a week and a half old. And here is what the tweet says. If children can't consent to puberty blockers, which pause any permanent changes, even with the relevant professional evaluation, how can they consent to the permanent and irreversible changes that come with their own puberty with no professional evaluation whatsoever? This is literally a position that permanent changes are fine as long as you're not trans. An inability to offer informed consent or understand the long-term consequences is actually an argument for putting every single cis and trans person on puberty blockers until they acquire that ability. Okay, that, okay so that sounds wild to you. okay? If you follow what this, this person is saying, this crazy person. This person is saying that because sex is assigned at birth, right? This language that the left now uses on a routine basis. Sex is assigned at birth. When you have a baby, you, don't, you actually can't tell the gender. This is something Charles Blow said on Twitter the other day, and I laughed at him for it. He suggested that if a baby comes out of the womb, and you look at the baby, and the baby's a girl, You can't actually say that that baby is a girl because the baby may turn out to be a boy. You can't have a gender reveal party based on an ultrasound because gender is chosen later. So this trans activist is saying, OK, if that's the case, if gender is chosen later, then shouldn't we put every kid on puberty blockers so they are not forced by their hormones into the uncomfortable position of being at odds with their chosen gender? Why not make kids genderless widgets from the time that they are small so that their hormones don't force them into the binary decision between being a boy and being a girl? That is what this trans is saying. Now, that sounds crazy because it is crazy, but it is totally the logical conclusion of the position that gender is chosen and that sex is assigned at birth. Because if you see human beings as genderless widgets and sex as a biological nuisance, then this is the logical position. This is the logical endpoint. Now, nobody on the left ever talks about the logical endpoint because they don't want to talk about the logical endpoint. The moment you start talking about logical endpoints for these positions, the entire position completely falls apart. But this person happens to be hitting the nail on the head. If you believe that children choose their own, choose their own adventure, then presumably you should put every seven-year-old in America on puberty blockers so they have the freedom to choose whether they are boys or girls. This should be the position. Okay, another radical position that I noticed, and I think that is worthy of note, Noah Berlaski is a person who writes for NBC News. He writes think pieces for NBC News. He tweeted out the other day, quote, parents are tyrants. Parent is an oppressive class like rich people or white people. A lot to unpack right there. So note, Noah Berlatsky is, I believe, a white writer for NBC News who apparently is not earning a low salary. I don't know if he has kids. If he does, what could he's 50 years old, guys? I assume he like at a certain point, your parental issues are going to have to be solved. But parents are tyrants. Parents is an oppressive class like rich people or white people. Well, once you take the position that the government knows better than you do how to raise your own child, that the American Federation of Teachers should decide exactly what your child learns. And that whatever is the prevailing leftist ideology of the day ought to be crammed down on parents. Parents really don't have autonomy to decide what their kids should and should not learn. In fact, parents shouldn't even have autonomy to decide what public school to send their kids to. Well, the idea there is that you are, you are in fact, liberating children from their parents. This is a, a sort of Marxist trope in the Communist Manifesto. There is this idea that parents are, in fact, an oppressive class and that you need the state to liberate children from the bondage of their parents. Now, in the real world, here's how we see all of this. There is accepted tradition brought down over thousands of years of human history. Human nature is fundamentally unchanging. Parents are there to provide the established wisdom to their children. Over time, people can determine that perhaps an established piece of wisdom is false, but that requires careful consideration. Parents are not an oppressive class. Parents are what liberate you from the shackles of barbarity. If you've ever met a child, you understand that kids cannot be trusted to do anything Parents need to be there, not only to provide for them, but to guide them in the confusing process of growing up. But if you're a big believer in the idea that parents are oppressors, that children are innately wonderful and not only innocent, but good, and that it's only the shackles of society that make them bad, these are the positions you end up with. The state should liberate children from their parents. The state should allow children to decide what their gender is. Now, if all this sounds crazy, it's because it is crazy. It is crazy. But you watch. Anything that is crazy becomes mainstreamed within five years. Within five years, this all will be part of the mainstream discussion. <laughs> will be, when should puberty, I mean, the, the puberty blocker conversation about whether kids should be, should be having puberty blockers, whether or not they are trans, that stuff is basically already on the table. I mean, when we are talking about judges mandating that parents be, who don't want their kids to have puberty blockers give their kids puberty blockers at the age of 10 because one parent disagrees with the other parent, or when a kid declares themselves trans at 12 and a judge decides. That if a parent refuses to do that, then the kid needs to be taken out of the home. This is already happening in some areas of Canada, for example. That is the case that is being made. Now, how does any of that drive all of that gender ideology, all of that belief about the evils of parenting and the good of the state? All of that is buried deep within the sort of moderate veneer of Joe Biden's philosophy. He just doesn't want to get at it or he doesn't want to think about it because he might come to these sorts of conclusions eventually. The hard left will come to those conclusions if they think about it long enough. So what I would like to know in the end is how any of that jives with things like Catholic doctrine or history, or for that matter, decency. How do these things become mainstream? They become mainstream when the media decide that it's time to silence you about these particular issues. Now, it's going to take a while on this. I mean, this is the bleeding edge of the radical left. Let's not pretend this is the mainstream Democratic Party position. It is not. The mainstream Democratic Party position is that boys can become girls and girls can become boys. Not that we have to mandate puberty blockers for children, but that children should be able to get puberty blockers if they declare themselves a member of the opposite sex. But it's not that far a move from one to the other. And it is not the position of the Democratic Party that parents are an oppressive class. It is just the position of the Democratic Party that if Child Protective Services decides that you are raising your child not in in accordance with the proper woke ideology, that you're a bad parent and that they should show up to try and re-educate your children, right? So again, all of this is the sort of exaggerated form of the moderated argument. But it's important to recognize the exaggerated form of the moderate argument because it does shed light on what the moderated argument actually is in so many of these cases. You're seeing that you're seeing exactly this relationship between radicalism and moderation inside the actual formal Democratic Party these days. You're seeing this battle break out between the Ilhan Omars of the world and the Joe Bidens of the world. Ilhan Omar, for example, she said yesterday that she's angry that, that the radicals don't have a big enough seat at the Biden table. Don't worry. They'll get the big enough seat. They will eventually it may take a couple of years, but you watch.
1: Senator Bernie Sanders has said he doesn't think the progressive movement has a big enough seat at the table with the Biden team. Do you agree with him? I do. Uh, and this is you know what we have been uh, saying and asking for. Um, we worked diligently in, in trying to make sure that the people understood that it was important for us to get rid of uh, Trump. but to have someone who was going to be partner with us in in governing for progress in our country. Uh, and we continue to be hopeful in having that
0: partnership. Okay, so you watch. The radicals are on the march. How do we know, by the way, that the radicals are on the march? Because Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and Linda Sarsour are all campaigning for Raphael Warnock. You know, who else is campaigning for Raphael Warnock down in Georgia? Joe Biden. He's campaigning for a guy who's openly anti-Semitic down in Georgia and who hangs out with the likes of Linda Sarsour. By the way, Raphael Warnock, New piece of footage of him yesterday, the Senate candidate in Georgia. Uh, he uh, praised Louis Farrakhan's Nation of Islam as important, which is interesting because Louis Farrakhan has suggested uh, that Jews need to, be, to, to experience a little bit of that genocide kind of stuff. Here is uh, here's Raphael Warnock in 2013. Okay, This is not when he was a kid. When, in 2013, praising the Nation of Islam. The Nation of Islam is significant, uh, but its numbers don't
1: come anywhere near the membership of uh, our churches. Um, its, its voice has been important and its voice has been important even for the development of black theology because it was the black Muslims who, who challenged black
0: preachers. Good stuff there from Raphael Warnock. This is the person the Democrats are trying to put into the United States Senate. Other Democrats who have gained prominence during the, this moderate era in, in Democrat thinking, Ted Wheeler, so Ted Wheeler, that mayor of Portland, um, he, um, he actually apologized. I'm not kidding. He apologized for dismantling the autonomous zone in Portland. So they tried to create a chaz chop in Portland. And Ted Wheeler sent in the, uh, sent in the troops, basically, and said, nope, you're not doing that. Well, now, apparently, he has apologized. And, and they are negotiating with the occupiers. <laughs> this is hilarious. This is all according to Red House on Mississippi. That is the, uh, that is the protest group. The Daily Wire reported last week that Wheeler ordered members of the Red House Autonomous Zone to leave or face eviction by force after protesters who'd been occupying the land around Red House for several weeks set up makeshift barriers and declared the space indigenous land. Wheeler announced that Portland police would use all lawful means to clear protesters from that home, according to Oregon Public Broadcasting. At the time, Wheeler went so far to say as to that he he would end the illegal occupation. However, Red House now says the mayor has apologized for the incident and is in negotiations with both the protesters and the home's owners, and protesters reportedly agreed to remove barriers surrounding the autonomous zone. Wheeler then confirmed the negotiation and a subsequent deal. He said this agreement is an important step toward de-escalation and a long-term resolution for the neighborhood and the Kinney family. I maintain the measured optimism we can accomplish this step and move toward the next steps to advance the safety and well-being of the family and safety of the neighborhood. Yeah, Ted Wheeler, standing strong for moderation over in Portland. And the moderates in the Democratic Party, the only question is when they will cave, not if they will cave. Because if we've seen one thing among Democrats, they never move back to the center for very long. It is always a a stopgap holding move until they move radically to the left. So watch for that to happen in the near future. Cheered on, of course, by the members of the mainstream media. All righty, join us later for two additional hours of The Ben Shapiro Show. Or while you wait, check out The Michael Knowles Show on dailywire.com right now. He'll be discussing President Trump's final pathway to victory. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Our associate producers are Rebecca Doyle and Savannah Dominguez. The show is edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Fabiola Cristina. Production assistant, Jessica Crams. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright 2020.
1: The Electoral College votes for Biden, leaving President Trump just one route left to win. Michigan orders a forensic audit of voting machines and a Hollywood actress calls for gay inmates to violate the president of the United States.
0: Check it out on the Michael Knowles Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values and that free,